The Digital Salon is a curation of listening experiences produced by the alumni and affiliated members of the UCLA Urban Humanities Initiative. In our pilot season, our contributors meditate on the theme of the portal. Through readings, sound walks, audio collages, interviews, and more, we seek out the openings, fissures, and apertures within the pandemic. We're your hosts. I'm Gus Wendell. And I am Jacqueline Barrios. And for our second episode, UHI alum Dr. Brady Collins and professor of political science at Cal Poly Pomona tunes us into LA's ethnic supermarkets, sharing the story about the essential work they perform in urban space. Papa Christo's, a Greek market and restaurant, sits on a portion of Pico Boulevard lined with thick trees, the sidewalk crowded with people waiting for the bus. Papa Christo, the man himself, is painted on the side of the building with a big smile and a big bushy mustache. Today, I'm here to pick up some groceries. Specifically, bread, olive oil, feta cheese, yogurt, sardines, and white beans. Inside, it's crowded. People browse the shelves in small groups, murmuring to each other. I quickly find what I'm looking for, but can't help but start to browse myself. The beans? Yeah, I want those beans. Papa Christo's is located at the outskirts of what most Angelinas refer to as Pico Union, a dense and working-class Latinx neighborhood. However, if you stand outside the market and look up, you'll notice that on the roof of the building across the street is an enormous sign that reads Byzantine Latino Quarter, a reference to the area's history its multiple and overlapping identities. This part of LA has been home for wave after wave of immigrants. Once a wealthy suburb to a booming city in the 1920s, the area experienced rapid decline and divestment when the depression hit. As wealthier, whiter populations left, they were quickly replaced. For decades, thousands of immigrants coming from Europe settled here. Greeks, Norwegians, Swedes, Welsh, Lithuanians, Hungarians, and Russian Jews. In the 1970s, Central Americans and Koreans arrived. Founded in 1948, Papa Christos has seen a lot of this change. In fact, this is not really a Greek market, it's an immigrant market. With little Ethiopia a couple miles away, one entire corner of the market is dedicated to Ethiopian goods. Dozens of spices, whole spices, ground spices, and 10-pound bags of different kinds of flour. While inside, a woman speaks with the worker behind the counter in Spanish and orders some cortido, pickled vegetables typical of El Salvador. The woman behind the counter grabs a large spoon and makes deep pulls out of a bucket of pale pink, green, and yellow veggies. The bucket adjacent is filled with Greek olives. I think that's it, right? When it's my turn to check out, 
I notice a Greek brandy my father likes behind the counter. Metaxa. I should probably get that too. Can we also, I'm sorry. Seven year or five year, the woman asks. Uh, seven, I say. Like I've been buying it for years. Let's get a big one. The title Byzantine Latino Quarter was the result of a community-led revitalization effort in the late 90s. In recognition of the decades of neglect this area has experienced, a coalition of residents and merchants, as well as UCLA students and faculty, employed small-scale interventions in the built environment to both improve the quality of life and highlight the culture of the community. In the words of Anastasia Lukaitu Sideris, a UCLA professor of urban planning who was part of the effort, the process, quote, allowed marginalized populations, the poor, the immigrants, and the children, to dream that they also can become city builders. The question of who gets to build the city is an important one, and one planners continue to grapple with. But as the COVID pandemic hit, the question changed. When quarantine and stay-at-home orders became our new normal, the question was, who maintains the city? And as businesses closed their doors with no set date for reopening, putting millions out of work, who would remain? Being privileged and fortunate enough to not experience any health issues, nor need to commute for work, going to the grocery store became the only reason for my wife and I to leave our apartment during the pandemic. And yet the first time we saw a line circling around the block at a Trader Joe's, we vowed to avoid the big box stores for our food shopping. Having done research on this area's ethnic markets several years ago, I'm very familiar with the dozens of small markets throughout central Los Angeles, and we are regulars at many of them. For quarantine grocery shopping, we agreed to stick to these places only. The Corner Mexican Market, the South Asian Grocer, the Armenian Deli, the more we frequented these places, the more I was reminded of the tough lessons I learned while studying this area. I once again began to scrutinize my positionality in relationship to these neighborhoods. These markets became portals or gateways through which I once again witnessed the importance of small ethnic markets to urban life, their economic precarity, and the resilience of the communities they serve. Every time we go, I'm comforted by what I see and smell, but I'm also conflicted about my presence. My mind spirals easily, crossing these portals and descending as I wonder, what will city life look like after this? What should it look like? And as a social scientist, what role can I play? What role should I play? Today, I'm going to take you with me. We've got three more markets to visit, three more portals to cross. We're at Benito Juarez Market on 8th Street in Koreatown. There's a short line out front where a few women and children wait quietly, masks on, Named after the 26th president of Mexico, who was of indigenous Oaxacan heritage, Benito Juarez Market specializes in Oaxacan products. My wife and I are here for salsa, chilies, garbanzo beans, and fresh tortillas.
We enter, but the cashier quickly tells us that only one person from a pair can come in at a time. I'll see you in the car, my wife says. Towards the back of the market, where the carniceria is located, is another line of people. I peek through the glass at piles of chorizo, quesillo, and freshly made tlayudas. I nearly forget what I'm doing here. As I look for cans of chilies, I notice an entire rack devoted to ducal. Ducal is a brand of refried beans that comes in cans, bags, and in black or red bean varieties. I recall momentarily the first time I was introduced to Ducal by a friend of mine, Scarlett. Scarlett is Guatemalan American and grew up in this area and now works as a community organizer. When she first brought me here, I nearly jumped when she yelled, Ducal! I remember wondering if she gets us excited every time she sees it. If you're unfamiliar with Ducal, the first time you see it, you may think it looks a bit odd. The rendered image of the refried black beans is so black and so shiny, it almost looks like a piece of polished coal resting on a plate. It was only when Scarlett heated it up for me with some cheese and gave me a chunk of fluffy bread to dip it in that I understood. How can this be just beans? Around the same time I discovered Ducal, I began my dissertation research on gentrification in this part of LA. Most scholars talk about gentrification as something that happens to a low-income community with the arrival of capital investment and wealthier, whiter residents. In a nutshell, white people move in, development of luxury housing follows, rents increase, and longtime residents, often people of color, are displaced. Eventually, the community that once was, the residents, the businesses, the identity is erased. But for decades, central Los Angeles has been a mosaic of overlapping immigrant populations. Koreatown, despite its name, is not just a Korean neighborhood. In fact, it is predominantly Latinx. Yet more specifically, Koreatown is home to large portions of Koreans, Bengalis, Oaxacans, Guatemalans, Salvadorans, and Nicaraguans. A little farther north, towards East Hollywood, are Thai and Armenian communities. Like much of LA, this area is also currently experiencing concentrated development and an influx of new residents. In this context, I wondered, how would gentrification play out? Is it possible that all of these communities would become whitewashed? Would some groups get pushed out while others remain? Just as what happened in the Byzantine Latino Quarter, would different communities come together to establish a shared identity? When we met, Scarlett was working at Kiwa, which stands for the Koreatown Immigrant Workers Alliance. Founded in 1992 by Korean activists, Kiwa is a worker center they help address the labor issues faced by low-wage immigrant workers, many of whom are undocumented and who are typically overlooked by big labor unions. When I first walked into Cuba's office, I quickly noticed it was not just a Korean organization. 
the staff and the workers they were organizing were Korean and Latinx. Kiwa represented and embraced the overlapping identities of this neighborhood. With Scarlett and Kiwa's help, I met and interviewed dozens of residents from all different ethnic backgrounds. I was curious how they saw the neighborhood changing, what places were important to them, and what they were concerned might disappear. Something I didn't expect was how often they mentioned their local grocery store or market. Respondents often described it as the most important place in the neighborhood, the place they felt attached to, the place that they were worried might disappear. Yet this made a lot of sense when I thought about it. Koreatown is predominantly working class and predominantly immigrant. While some families have cars, many don't. Many rely on public transit to get to work and run errands. Unlike the more suburban parts of Los Angeles, where perhaps one massive bond serves residents within a two-mile radius, central Los Angeles is speckled with markets, from corner stores to large galleries. I spoke to more residents, and not just in Koreatown, throughout central Los Angeles. I found that no matter their age, no matter their ethnicity, markets were the places people felt most attached to. A big part of it was not just the convenience of access, but the fact that these markets sold the products they knew from their native countries. When I interviewed residents, I would show them a map and have them mark off those locations that meant the most to them. I remember one woman circling one market several times as she shook her head explaining, Esta tienda. Esta tienda me importa mucho. When I was first taken to a market solely dedicated to kimchi, kimchi in 10 different types, maybe 20, maybe more, I could see these markets were not just places to buy food, they were places that preserved culture, preserved identity. I once again thought of Scarlett and her beloved Ducal. You think Whole Foods sells this stuff? I'd asked her once. She just laughed. Asian Mart on 3rd Street barely has enough sidewalk in front of it for two people to walk side by side. This part of 3rd Street is also very trafficy. It seems a horn is honked every two to three seconds. Each time I come here, I'm both frustrated and inspired. Frustrated at how the built environment here is literally built for cars, but inspired by how markets like Asian Mart can seem to sprout and blossom in the most unaccommodating of environments. Today. I'm here for canned jackfruit, big bags of spices, and an even bigger bag of basmati rice. It can be hard to see the entrance of Asian Mart because there are boxes and boxes of goods stacked up front. While the market sells all sorts of Asian products, it is mainly a Bangladeshi market. This part of central LA has a large concentration of Bengalis. Just up the street is a signpost that reads, Little Bangladesh. Walk a bit further, and you'll see a sign identical in shape and color that reads, Koreatown. On 3rd Street, it appears you are in both neighborhoods simultaneously, which is sort of true. In 2009, the growing Bengali community began demanding public recognition by the city with the designation of their own neighborhood, 
from approximately 3rd Street to Wilshire Boulevard and Western to Vermont. Some Korean residents reacted with concerns because, to them, that area is the location of Koreatown. At the time, the media quickly jumped on this and painted it as a territorial dispute. And in some ways, it was. In a country that seems to both celebrate immigrants and systematically oppress them, gaining public recognition by claiming space in a major city is a powerful symbol of achievement and upward mobility. Others, like those at Kiwa, pointed out that the real question is not what you call the neighborhood, but who will be responsible for it. In a letter to the editor of the LA Times, Eileen Ma, an organizer for Kiwa back then, demanded the city address the root issues in the community. She wrote, quote, we need more quality affordable housing, parks, libraries, accessible healthcare, and so on. In an attempt to mediate the dispute, Tom Labange, the city council member of the area at the time, invited leaders from each group to walk him through the area and to try to come to an agreement as to where each neighborhood should begin and end. What do they rely on to help draw boundaries? The presence of ethnic markets. There are only two aisles inside Asian Mart, and they're very narrow, so I do my best to squeeze by others to show that I am at least trying to maintain a distance of six feet. By the cashier, I notice a stack of jars on the counter. The jars are filled with ghee, which seems to glow golden yellow as if there are candles inside. I start to think of all the things that would taste better if I cooked them with ghee. I like to think I can make a pretty good grilled cheese. What if I used ghee instead of butter? Would that be weird? I don't think so. I bet just sauteing vegetables in this stuff is fantastic. I start to picture a plate of sauteed carrots covered in glowing golden ghee. With the onset of COVID, markets like these are more important than ever to keeping families fed, especially immigrant families who are more likely to struggle economically and yet the markets themselves are suffering. While Congress allocated $350 billion in small business lending as part of the CARES Act stimulus package back in March, the funding quickly dried up, with critics pointing out that some amounts of this went to large corporate chains rather than the mom and pops it was seemingly intended for. And businesses owned by people of color are hardest hit. According to a study by Nonprofit Quarterly, as of April, the country lost nearly 450,000 African-American businesses. The number of Latinx businesses dropped by 32%, and Asian businesses dropped by a quarter. In a poll conducted in California by the small business majority, 44% of small business owners said that they had to draw from personal savings or retirement to keep their business afloat. A similar number said they are continuing to offer their workers health insurance but most are concerned that their workers cannot access health care. Small grocers and their workers may not fully recover from this pandemic. It's sad and ironic that what we now recognize as essential workers are also some of the lowest paid workers in our economy. Those that stock and bag our food, cook and prepare our meals, look after our elderly. In Los Angeles, they've been working through the crisis and they can barely afford rent in their city. It's hard not to see the pandemic as the finger that pushed over the first domino, setting in motion a series of subsequent crises falling one after the other. 
essential workers, many of whom are low wage and workers of color, do the jobs that support city residents through a public health pandemic that disproportionately hurts people of color. Those that are furloughed or fired rely on unemployment, unless of course they're undocumented, in which case they aren't even eligible. Most will be left to choose between feeding their families or paying the rent. All this in a city facing a housing and homelessness crisis. Better understanding this economic precarity was a goal of my dissertation. Yet as my research continued, I felt immensely conflicted by my position as both a researcher of immigrant communities and a resident within one. I began to see my own research, while well-intentioned, as a kind of exploitation, extracting value from the neighborhoods I examined for my own benefit. After all, my work was not going to stop gentrification, but it would hopefully help me land a job in academia. I would often find myself attempting a kind of guilt calculus in my head. Does my research adequately offset the negative impact I have as a gentrifier of this neighborhood? Is my existence therefore a net gain for this community? How absurd, I thought. Getting involved in Kiwa became a way for me to restructure my relationship to the neighborhood and to the city in general. I spent more and more time there, dedicating what skills I could offer to support the organization's campaigns against gentrification and the community. Eventually, this work became more meaningful than the research itself. I often thought of the concept of going native in anthropology, which refers to the danger ethnographers face if they become too close to the subjects of their research and therefore cannot adequately examine them from a position of objectivity. Was I going native? That this term is rooted in anthropology's relationship to colonialism made me feel even more conflicted. My work is colonialism, disguised as social science, I concluded. How can I continue this charade? Today, we're at Karabakh Meat Market on Santa Monica Boulevard. Karabakh is a region of Armenia, but it's a bit more complicated than that. It's a disputed territory. I won't go into the details because I'm no expert on geopolitics, but the fact that a specifically Karabakh market exists in LA speaks to just how many different Armenian diasporic communities are in this city. During my dissertation research, I learned from an Armenian activist and community leader that there have been four waves of Armenian immigration to California. Pre-genocide, post-genocide, the Lebanese war, and the collapse of the Soviet Union. As a result, we have significant concentrations of both Lebanese Armenian and Russian Armenian diasporas in LA. In Karabakh meat market, you'll mainly hear Russian I only know this because I'm often mistaken for Russian-Armenian by the cashier. I'll approach, they will say something to me in Russian, I'll smile awkwardly, and they'll say, oh, you don't speak Russian. 
If it wasn't so often crowded in here, with so many families waiting in line behind me, I can imagine myself using this as an opportunity to try to introduce myself. No, I don't speak Russian, but I think my great-grandmother did. She was Russian. But I think she lived in what was then considered Poland. So maybe she spoke Polish then? I guess I'm not sure. She was Jewish, though, so she had to escape Russia because, you know, they didn't like the Jews. Like I said, I'm not great with geopolitics. I think our taste for food must be inherited because I tend to go nuts in this place. Today I'm here for cheese, two different types. Salami, the spiciest mustard on the planet. Lebna, ajvar, sujuk, olives, pickles, coffee, tea, and maybe some tabbouleh. They make great tabbouleh. We're approaching the fourth month of quarantine. George Floyd was murdered a week ago. Protests have erupted across the country. The county has announced a 6 p.m. curfew. The National Guard has set up shop around the corner from my apartment. The dominoes continue to fall. I'm trying to get my grocery shopping done early to get home before 6 p.m. A friend of mine told me she was arrested the other night simply for being outside past curfew. I've seen videos of the police firing rubber bullets at people walking down the sidewalk. I'm a little on edge. The other patrons also seem a bit on edge. Outside, our city is in turmoil. I wonder, will this market make it through the crisis? And what about the workers here, stocking and packaging our food day in and day out despite the health risks? Our city, our way of life, is maintained by them. Why are they so often paid poverty wages? Why aren't these businesses the first ones to receive federal aid through the CARES Act? I notice a child picking candy out of a large basket on the floor. The deli counter is lined with these baskets, each filled with a different kind of candy with a different colored shimmering wrapper. I've never tried them, but I've noticed they're a big hit. I've seen folks walk in here and scream when they find a particular brand of candy, sort of like Scarlett when she sees Ducal. This little boy has so many in his hands, they're spilling out onto the floor. As kids, we're dragged to the market by our parents. It's a boring stop on the way home, with not much to amuse a toddler. Even as adults, grocery shopping can often seem like just another errand. Toilet paper jokes aside, the pandemic has shown us how lost and panicked we would be without them. Hello. Can I have a, a spicy salami? After finishing my dissertation research and writing up my findings, I argued that markets, particularly small ethnic markets like Carabac, Asian Mart, Benito Juarez, and Papa Cristos, were more important than urban planners gave them credit. The discussion around gentrification tends to focus on housing, 
People debate whether we can solve this problem by increasing the housing supply or passing rent control, and that's certainly part of it. But I think an important part of gentrification is the loss of identity, the loss of the places you spend time outside of home, where one experiences this sense of identity. Social scientists are expected to make policy proposals, so I propose that curbing gentrification required not only making housing more affordable, but also improving wages and establishing lending programs for ethnic minority small businesses so that these markets, those that work in them, and those that shop at them could remain. I still stand by this. As social scientists, we also hope our research makes an impact. Ideally, it reaches non-academics, it informs people's opinions, their behaviors, it shapes policy. But measuring that impact is extremely difficult. Standing here in line, thinking about the dominoes that are stacked against these communities, I'm not feeling too optimistic. The pandemic has exposed just how much our city relies on the labor of those most vulnerable and how vulnerable these places are that preserve our city's culture. Without serious federal, state, and local government intervention, the COVID pandemic could lead to the systematic gentrification of entire communities, which doesn't just mean the loss of housing, but also the loss of jobs, the loss of identity, a kind of crisis on the horizon, or the final domino, I suppose. We are hearing that these are transformational times we're living through. My experience with this research taught me that transformation isn't just about what we do, like donating money and striving to help others. It requires we transform ourselves. It requires questioning your desire to help, questioning its foundation, the structural conditions that allow you to help. It requires asking even harder questions, like how help can be exploitative and self-serving. It reminds me of a concept in organizing I learned from Kiwa about, quote, holding space. To hold space is to use your power to be absent, to empower others by disappearing. Holding space requires we suppress our egos, our desire to give guidance or advice. Holding space for others means letting them do with it what they please, whatever that may be. And that's it. That's enough. Thank you very much. That smell is fried bread. Is that frying bread over I'd like to thank Posey for sharing his music with me for this episode. Thank you to Scarlett De Leon and Jose Eduardo Sanchez for always helping me stay in my lane. And of course, a big thank you to Jacqueline Barrios, Gus Wendell, Dana Cuff, and the Urban Humanities Initiative for always giving me the opportunity to explore. Tune in next week for the next episode of the digital podcast, The Portal. For more information, visit our website, digitalsalonpodcast.org.